Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're going to be learning a lot about co-working. So without further ado, Jamie Hudari, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. So your CV is quite impressive, I, I have to say, especially starting at at the beginning. You studied not in one, but in three Ivy League equivalent schools. So those are Columbia, Harvard, Yale. Why so many degrees? Uh, I love. I love being in school. I love education. I actually worked in education for a while after school, and I suspect I might go back into it um, one day as well. Got it. So, so let's talk about, for example, like graduating and and being out of college. Your first, I would say, experience with the um, with the uh, labor market that was the Times of India. So, how was your experience doing that? I, it was really, uh, it was pretty, it was great, but I will say it was tough. I, 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 my family's from Argentina, so I, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily have a, like a family connection to India, but I learned Hindi and Urdu in college. And so some of it was just, I wanted a, a, a reason to get to put that to work. So I went and became a reporter at the times of India and, um, and I was based in Delhi and it was really fascinating. The one, it was a tough time for India. There was a kind of conservative government in place that um, that was both a very anti-Muslim and b anti-press. Uh, and so they liked using me as this sort of like foreign young kooky reporter that they could that they could have interview or talk to some of these conservative politicians that had. A little bit, you know, that were very pro-U.S., but had a kind of an anti-local press bent, and so it was great. I, you know, as a 22-year-old, I shouldn't have been getting to interview those kind of people, but I think they were pretty, like, not very good people, and I didn't love having to like interact with those types. Um, I guess, for lack of a better word, got it. And I, I mean, and I think that this was, you know, probably critical for you because. One thing that I see is that the best founders are not the best visionaries or people that just sell, sell, sell. It's people that are really good at storytelling. So do you think that this shaped a little bit that front for you? Yes. I, I think being a journalist has been extraordinarily helpful 
both for storytelling reasons, but even more so, I think, for being a a really good listener. I'm shocked by the number of founders um, that that aren't very good at listening, that aren't very good at, at, at sort of hearing what people are really saying. Um, and don't ask good follow-up questions, because I think one of the most important things to note when you're founding a business is that there are very few problems you're going to encounter. There's very few challenges you're going to face that a thousand people haven't already faced before. And if you try to logic through everything from first principles and assume that you're going to come to a better conclusion than all the people that come before you have, you're much less likely to succeed than if you're willing to be humble and say, I'm going to do everything I can to learn what other people in my space are thinking, what people in adjacent industries are thinking, what other entrepreneurs have done when faced with similar situations. That is the most powerful tool you can have as an entrepreneur is a keen, curious appetite for listening. Right, right. And and one thing that, and I agree with that, by the way, that's why we have two ears and, and just one mouth. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah. So, so then law school. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm also a recovering lawyer, and I know how it feels to go from law to entrepreneurship. But in your case, after law, law school, you go to Sullivan and Cromwell as, as an attorney. So what, what kind of practice were you doing there? Um, I primarily did project finance. Uh, so um, I think I the reason I didn't do it for very long was because in my mind, I had said project finance, I get to fund big you know, development projects in the developing world, railroad lines, infrastructure, et cetera, that can help developing economies grow. And as you might suspect, the vast majority of project finance is actually gold mining, copper mining, um, oil projects, et cetera. And so there's nothing wrong necessarily with the sort of resource extraction industry. It just wasn't what I wanted to be spending my time doing. So I moved to working at a hedge fund. Got it. Got it. So and I don't know if you you know this, but for the people that are listening as well, the fun factor is that Peter Thiel also worked at this same firm before he was a an oh, entrepreneur. I know that. Yeah, I knew so. that George Clooney's um, uh, wife um, was a lawyer there, but I didn't realize Peter Thiel as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, and it's 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 honestly one of the best law firms in in New York. So so I'm sure the the experience for you was great. So so I guess I guess for you. How would you say that the this legal background has has helped you over over the years? I think legal. I think being a journalist was unequivocally a good thing. I think being a lawyer, come entrepreneur, is a is a double edged sword. I think it makes you very good at issue spotting, very good at you know a lot of times business deals. There can be this sort of honeymoon period where everyone assumes everything's going to go right, and your job as a lawyer. When you're drafting the contract is to say, what if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? To sort of spin forward 10 years and anticipate all the possible things that could go wrong, which is a valuable skill, but it can also be a handicap as an entrepreneur because you can get so caught up in everything that could go wrong that you miss what's right in front of your face or that you become unwilling to take risks. And I've seen a lot of lawyers struggle with being successful entrepreneurs for that exact reason, and it takes effort and thought to overcome that and say, I'm going to anticipate everything that could go wrong. And I'm going to do this anyway, having sort of identified what the risks are. I think the other one other thought on being a lawyer come entrepreneur is that you're really good at seeing both sides of an issue. 
and and you really you kind of see everything as gray. There's this, but there's also this. And part of being an entrepreneur is you have to be extraordinarily decisive. You just you don't have a choice. Time is of the essence. You just have to make a call, even if it's not clear that it's the right call. Any decision is better than no decision. And I also find that sometimes really good legal training makes you less decisive, not more decisive because of how much it teaches you to see every side of an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And then also it helps to reduce the legal costs. And, you know, I don't know if you experienced that, but uh, man, like when you're dealing with, with lawyers and I'm sure that people that are listening can relate, it's like you're in a taxi and it's just, it just keeps going and going and anything is like, Hey, why don't we have this call? And I think that at least for me and perhaps for you, it might have helped. I was like, there's no need for a call. (laughs) Just get this thing done. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, really cool. So why, why, why did you switch from Sullivan and Cromwell to Birch round Birch run capital? I, uh, I knew that I wanted to go into business and I felt like a real deficit that I didn't, I didn't know accounting. I didn't know financial modeling. And at that point, as you noted, I had three degrees. I wasn't going to go back to business school. And in fact, you know, I think, um, my sense was that there was quicker, better ways to learn that. So some of it was just that I knew it would be a quick thrown in the deep end education in business dynamics in finance, sort of finance, et cetera. Um, and then I also thought, uh, that it sounded like a really fascinating way to spend your days, to learn about the world, to, to have to sort of develop hypotheses or theses and test them and then make bets behind them. Um, I didn't think it was what I wanted to do for my whole life, but I, I figured it would be a pretty appealing way to spend a couple of years. Right. Right. So, so, Let's talk about the um, the entrepreneurial bug. How did this happen? I always had a list of business ideas um, starting from maybe 23 or 24. And I always, you know, I was always re-ranking them and crossing them off the list if someone else started it or if I had, you know, and, and but I always had that list. And I think, honestly, I... I probably didn't have the confidence in my mid twenties to just say, screw it. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go do this right out of, right out of law school, for example. Um, and so I just kind of had this list and it was, it was sort of ticking and going and, and I was waiting until I developed the, what I felt like were the requisite skills, the maturity, um, to actually like strike off on my own with the confidence to do it. And I still don't know to this day if that was the right call or if I should have, you know, if I could have saved five years of my life, if I just took the plunge straight out of school. Yeah. Yeah. And your first company that was Kepler. Yeah. So I, I, um, I, I left the hedge fund to take over basically the large private college scholarship program for orphans of the Rwandan genocide in Rwanda. And when I got there, um, it was pretty clear pretty early on that the universities in Rwanda were a very poor quality and, and, you know, beyond what, what might, what one might assume about this. So you have 800 students in a lecture hall and there's no microphone. So the first 40, you know, the first couple rows can hear the professor and then everyone else in the room can't hear a word the professor is saying. And they're just trying to copy the notes of the row in front of them. That's trying to copy the notes of the row in front of them. And so I think very quickly I, you know, sat down with the board and, said, you know, we're, we're, we're spending, you know, a good amount of money to send students to these universities where it's not clear to me they're learning much. It's not clear to me they're actually being prepared for the job market. 
Um, and that's not doing Rwanda service. It's not doing those students a service. And if we really want to do this right, what we should do is just launch our own university. And that's what Kepler was, was a model, a new kind of university. And it's now, you know, a network with a few campuses. Um, but it wasn't clear at the outset that that was a good idea. I think it was perhaps at first blush, like just a little too ambitious to bite off for some guy in his late twenties and a, and a, board that had only run a scholarship program up to then. Got it. And what was the, um, the founding team of Kepler? So it was, uh, it was, you know, the existing generation Rwanda was the name of the scholarship program. It was me and the existing staff. We just made a pivot and, um, and, and we said, we said, we're going to, we're going to do this. I had to hire a lot of people and I had to hire a lot of people from the education industry. I had to hire a lot of curriculum designers and, you know, all, all, all the people you need to launch even a lightweight university. Um, but the core of it was essentially a pivot from an existing scholarship program. And we're talking about Rwanda. So obviously completely different from New York city where, where, where you and I are, but, uh, like, like, what is it like to launch a company in a place like Rwanda compared to, let's say, what are many of our listeners that are here in the U.S., you know, executing their business, you know, like to, to give them a sense? Yeah. I think there are um, there are big advantages and big disadvantages to launching something in a re relatively, you know, kind of um, early developing economy. I think on the downside there's a lot of regulation and a lot of unpredictability. There's, uh, you know, it's just, you never know if the government is going to decide one day that, you know, privately funded universities are no longer kosher or, you know, whatever it is. And that, that makes everything really hard compared to in the U S where you're in a relatively stable regulatory regime, where there's a lot of ability to say, if I do X, Y, and Z, I have real visibility into what that will mean. Um, on the flip side, and this is particularly true in higher education, you know, 1% of people in Rwanda go to university. So um, there's a lot of leeway to create something. And if it's a great product at a great price, there's going to be a lot of customers that are ready for that. And there aren't really powerful incumbents that can grind you down or find a way to block your entry. You know, whereas in the U.S. with a mature higher education market, for example, that would be much harder. Got it. So what, what ended up being the outcome for Kepler, Jamie? So uh, we launched Kepler. Um, the reality is I launched Industrious with my co-founder one month later. So I was running both simultaneously, which was hard to do for very long. But for one yeah. year, one very crazy year of my life, I did both. Um, and what Kepler is, is it's a blended learning university where you watch your lectures at home on basically on your laptop, usually video or, you know, sort of those, um, you know, either lectures, Rwandan lectures or lectures beamed in from the UK or US. And then when you go to class during the day, you, you work with a group and with a facilitator to work through your sort of problem sets and through various discussions. And so instead of doing your lecture in class and your homework at home, you do your lecture at home and your homework in class. And there's a lot of evidence that that's actually a more powerful um, pedagogical model than the typical way of doing it. And of course, it's also more cost-effective. So the university was $1,000 a year. IKEA, the furniture company, was and still is the largest funder and has helped you know, bring that cost down even more. 
Um, and it's been like a real runaway success. So there's now, again, like I said, multiple campuses and almost all of the third party assessments of student performance have shown that Kepler has within Rwanda the highest graduation rates, the highest job placement rates, the highest sort of advances on the collegiate learning assessment, which is the standard sort of test of critical thinking gains in university. So, you know, it's now industrious has grown so big that I still love and think about Kepler a lot, but um, I never quite imagined industrious would get to where it was, but I'm also very proud of of where Kepler is and and what that's doing. Got it, got it. So, so how the idea, because industrious is a, is the most recent one. How was the um, how did the idea or the incubation process really come to life? Of industrious, correct. So I had a meeting with the um, with the president of of IKEA uh, in New York, um, and our New York, you know, the vast majority of our headcount was in East Africa. Our New York offices were in a in a shared workplace, and um, you know, in all honesty, I went to prepare for the meeting with him and the conference room table was sticky and the, the half of the light bulbs were out and there were people walking around in cargo shorts and it just didn't feel sufficiently professional. So I moved the meeting to a Le Pen Quotidienne, you know, which is like a, a coffee shop in New York. Yeah. And that evening, I think I, you know, I talked to um, my co-founder, you know, who was my friend at the time and said, look, I, you know, we, I just had this experience and it was really crappy and I ended up having to host the most important meeting of my life in a coffee shop because my workplace didn't meet the bare minimum standards of sort of professionalism that I would expect. And if I feel this way, there must be 50,000 companies that feel this way, which, you know, you probably know running a, a podcast about this. A lot of companies are launched because an entrepreneur says I would be customer number one for this product. And this is the classic example of that. Uh, you know, me and my co-founder would have been customer number one for a more professional, premium, more elegant shared workplace product. Yeah, yeah. And Justin, so Justin, what what was again the um, like how how did you guys like really like say okay, you know, let's do this thing? Like, what was the background story like? How did you guys blend it? Like, what did you bring to the table? What did he uh, bring to the table? So how did that work out? So we had that we had that conversation I just described. And Justin was running the U.S. arm of a Chinese real estate company and was working in a shared workplace provider, and it had very similar experiences. So we basically started by saying, we really think that there would be a real market for a more premium shared workplace product. And the more we talked, we said, look, we, you know, he had been my next door neighbor since we were two years old. He was one of my closest friends. I think we had some hesitation about the idea of working together, given we were such close friends. But we also said, look, you know, Jamie, you know, that I have a lot of leadership experience and financial experience and, you know, know how to get an organization sort of started from a cold start. And Justin came from the real estate world and I think understood the dynamics of the real estate industry and how to get space at attractive terms um, in a really good sense. And so it was such a good fit in terms of our skill sets that we decided we were going to try to launch a premium shared workplace business together. Um, and that actually the fact that we were really close friends might, um, might actually help rather than, rather than be a complicating factor, or if at the very least it would be a bit of both. Yeah. The one thing I'll note is the company was based in New York, but we actually launched our first location in Chicago. We, we, we thought that that would be a little more forgiving of a market and that, um, you know, a little less capital intensive, 
And so we, we basically, you know, once we decided we want to do this, we want to create a premium product in the space. We sat down, we mapped out what it would look like. We mapped out how much capital it would be. We decided Chicago was be our first market. And I think we didn't, we didn't go back and forth for very long. We said, let's do this. Let's commit. We shook hands and we went out and started raising the money. Got it. Got it. Got it. Really, really cool. So yeah, because for something like this, it's, um, it's obviously capital intensive and, and we'll get into that in, in just a little bit. But what I wanted to ask you here is, um, so the, the business model, I mean, what, what, what ended up being the business model then? So the business model, and it's shifted a little over time, but the business model at the beginning was relatively simple. It was saying, um, we are going to create a shared workplace sort of complex for 50 to 60 companies in Chicago. So we're going to go lease space. We're going to build out this complex on, I think it was 20,000 square feet of space. We're going to build out this complex for 50 or 60 companies, and everyone's going to have their own private office. And there's going to be a lot of shared spaces where they can sort of, that they can all congregate or share or take, you know, sort of get access to those shared resources. And we were going to have, you know, we have to sign a lease with the landlord to do that. So there's a bit of risk there. Um, and, and that was the model. Go, you know, sign the lease, get the space stood up. And I think when we did our initial underwriting, we said, we believe at 90% occupancy, which we think we can get to, that this will be about a 30% IRR on the capital we put out, maybe a little higher, and that the margins at 90% occupancy will be about 30 to 35%. Um, and that seems like a pretty good business, and that's worth taking a shot at. Got it. Got it. And, and obviously, when, when you guys started, and, and, and also now, I mean, the, the co-working space is, is a competitive space. And I think that the positioning and, and how you are being looked at by potential uh, customers or people that are going to be coming to your locations is, is critical. So I guess when, when you guys started, um, you know, as mentioned, there were already some companies yeah. that were operating for a few years. So what was the gap that you found and how did you sell, set yourself apart from a positioning perspective? In the early days, a lot of the positioning was about maturity, seriousness, elegance, um, and underlying quality. So in the early days, the position that, you know, to some degree, that's still true for us, but certainly with that first location, I think we said, look, if you want a workplace that you're going to be proud to go to every day, that you're going to be excited to walk into every day, and that you're going to feel really proud to show off to, to clients, to colleagues, and where the general tone of it is going to be, um, you know, one one that's devoted to getting work done, that feels a little bit more serious um, than some of the other products in the market. At the time, the market was very focused on, you know, buzzy kind of, you know, we were only had a few locations at the time, but even other competitors at the time, they would play Tupac in the common area and there was all about a keg of beer and this or that, which appealed to a niche, you know, it appealed to an engineer in the early twenties that, you know, was in a frat two years before that and wanted to recreate that. And it was a horrible fit for a lawyer in their forties or, you know, and any sort of like customers like that. And that was a lot of the value proposition. And it just turned out to be the right call at the right time. So we had, I think, 62 offices in our original location. And that positioning of a more professional, more serious place to work that you'd feel really proud of, we ended up getting 600-something applications before we even opened for those 60-something spots. 
Got it. And I've heard you say that that going to markets, I mean, you were you were talking that, that you guys started in Chicago, but I've heard you say that going to markets where you have other players, uh, perhaps such as WeWork, um, this actually works in your favor. I mean, it's, it makes things easier. So why, why is this the case? I, I think, you know, this depends a lot on your industry, but I think for an industry like ours that's a bit young and where the, the name of the game is growing the pie more than sort of dividing dividing up that pie that you know right now our industry is one percent of commercial real estate and we're trying to make the case to johnson and johnson or verizon or a four-person pr firm that they are going to be happier more productive more engaged if they let a third party like us run their workplace experience and if they do it themselves um you know, that's an unfamiliar, very new way of approaching the way you deliver your employees' workplace experience. And so having other competitors in the market making that case at the same time, running digital ads against that, getting press against that, people show up at meetings at one of our competitors' spaces. If it opens their eyes to the possibility that they might actually get a better workplace experience via the use of a third-party platform like this, then uh, it pushes more people into the market. So for example, in New York City or Chicago, we might have you know 200 competitors in New York and 80 competitors in Chicago, but 80% of potential customers know what our industry is and they know what the value proposition of the product category is. So you've just got to convince them you're the best. In Salt Lake City, for example, or Madison, Wisconsin, some of our smaller markets, you have to spend a lot more time and money on customer education, on describing why they would want to work in this type of setting in the first place before you ever get to, um, you know, why you should be the, the partner they pick. And that usually for most businesses is a more expensive, more time consuming sort of lower ROI proposition than convincing an already motivated customer that you're their best option among their solution set. Got it. So, so for you guys, when, when you were really getting started, what were some of these challenges that, that you encountered, especially during the early days? Fundraising is always a challenge. I think two uh, was um, uh, once we succeeded in the early days, like coming up with that plan for how to scale, what, what, what were our, really our ambitions for the business? I think um, that first location exceeded our wildest imaginations. Like I said, you know, we thought it would be a 30% IRR and a 30% margin, and it was a 50% IRR and a 50% margin. And then it forced us very quickly to have to step back and say, what do we really want to do with this thing? And what, what are our personal aims and what are our professional aims, which we hadn't anticipated having to sort of cross that bridge as quickly as we had to. Right. So, so what was, for example, the, um, I heard you guys that um, I heard that you're putting co-working spaces in malls. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. What's the uh, reasoning behind this? So, you know, if you fast forward to now, we're in almost 80 locations across 35 cities. And, um, and what we found is there's a lot of appetite for our product in a lot of different, you know, sort of settings. So, this works really well in class A buildings and it works really well in converted warehouses and it works well in class B buildings and it works well in the heart of New York City, but it also works well in suburban Atlanta. And so over time, we've widened the aperture of sort of what are the potential spaces in which we could deliver a really wonderful workplace experience. And 
you know, we're in a moment right now where retail is shifting, where a lot of space is opening up in highly amenitized, beautiful retail spaces. And we did say, is it possible that actually it would be really great to get to show up to work every day in a mall where you have 20 restaurants to choose from and you're in this in you're in a space that's already built to sort of serve a lot of different needs of people rather than in a more inert static space like an office building. So we only did one because we was an experiment. We weren't sure how well it would go. Yeah. And it's exceeded all of our underwriting by a really wide margin. So now we're trying to quickly ramp up the, the sort of distribution of, of, of industriouses in, in retail settings. But we're behind the eight ball because I, I don't think we anticipated that it would go as well as it did. Right, right. And, and, and I also saw that uh, you were talking about like the, the locations and, and talking about the, the occupancy rate. You have 93%. And I assume that and I'm not sure if that has changed or not. At least that's the the last um, uh, metric that I was able to come across. But in a business like yours, what would you say drives customer retention? It's a great question. And let me start by saying in our business, customer retention matters more than customer acquisition. And that's the number one mistake most of our competitors have made. And my suspicion is that's not unique to our industry, that a lot of people in in, in 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 new industries fall prey to that trap of thinking, all I've got to do is get people in the door. And it's not that hard to get people in the door, especially if you're willing to spend money on marketing. The whole thing that makes the business tick is keeping those people. And we actually have a negative churn rate now. So we always had a low churn rate and then it kept dropping and then it kept dropping. And we finally hit negative churn, which is a really, I think, special moment for a business. And I can go into, if you want, all of the ways in which really high customer retention help make a business sort of function better. Um, but suffice to say, it's incredibly important to us. And I think it's a great question. So how do we get customers to stay? Um, so one thing is the reasons customers stay are not always the same as the reasons they come in the door in the first place. A lot of times with products, including ours, the things people think they're going to care about are not what they end up caring about. So in our business, it's the flashy sort of like really beautiful things when you walk in the door that get people to come in the door. But what makes people stay is that you've created a space that's comfortable and inviting and welcoming to come back to day after day for years and, and spend 10 hours a day in, which is very important in our business. And a lot of our competitors have focused so much on what's going to wow people when they tour, but they've missed the fact that what really matters is what's going to make someone feel comfortable and at home for years and years. And then the second, I think, is we have a really wonderful service program, a really, I think we do a much better job than anyone else in our industry at making people feel looked out for and making and making sure that people feel um, kind of taken care of at work, which is not a feeling people are that familiar with. And when you can do it right, you know, you have a loyal customer for life. And then the final piece, and the reality is, um, this is probably the most important of all, is you have to work as hard as possible to never mess up, that you can focus on all the surprise and delights and you can focus on all the amazing things you're doing. And a lot of what drives customer retention is execution and making sure that you're always delivering the baseline customer experience with no hiccups. And I think Industrious has always done a particularly good job of that. Got it. And and for something like a business like yours as well, I think that in the co-working space and, and look, my my previous business, I also started as, uh, out of a co-working space. But one thing that I 
identified or that I experienced or that I saw was was that in co-working spaces, I think that community is almost everything. And that I think that that also helps with driving retention because you feel you're part of something, not just going to an office space. So how do you see community and, and really how do you define it, you know, in the in the ecosystem of, of industries? It's a great question. And I do. Th- yes. I mean, look, community is extremely important in our business. I think one of the best ways to drive community is to have high retention. Um, so. You know, there's uh, if you're constantly seeing different people, everyone's coming and going. It feels very transient. It's going to be hard to sort of deliver a a really engaging, you know, deep rooted community. And so so if if that concept of saying retention and the idea that these are the same people you're seeing month after month and you're starting to develop relationships with them is at the core of it, then the two ways we accomplish that is one, by having very high customer retention and two, by not really having a transient products in our spaces. So we don't really do rent a desk, rent by the day. Our business is built around, you know, longer term sort of customer dynamics, private offices, customers who who are meant to stay for two, three, five years. And those two things in combination are the vast majority of it. What I will say is, I think sometimes people in our industry try to really push, you know, lots of events and come to wine networking hour. And that works kind of, but the best communities develop organically. So the best thing you can do is have a thoughtful, respectful group of professionals that are in the same space with access to really beautiful space types and great events day after day. And the community will develop organically more so than you trying to spoon and feed it or, or, or kind of like force it on them. Right, right. And you were talking as well about fundraising before, because for something like this, I mean, the, the real estate portion is it, it makes it capital intensive. So in your guys's case, how much capital have you raised to date? We've raised, um, we're, 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 um, we've raised 150 million to date and, you know, that number will be more like a bit over 300 by the end of this year. Got it. And I see that you have investors like Fifth Wall, you have Riverwood Capital. So how did you find those investors? Because it's a really interesting group of folks that you have on your cap table. We've always tried to be intentional about it. Um, I think one thing to think about when you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to figure out, you know, how to track down investors is you can spend a lot of time, you know, uh, going a mile wide and an inch deep and trying to talk to 80 different investors. And I've been guilty of it as well. But when I look at who's actually come through in, in our various rounds we've done, it's almost invariably the people who you've already developed a bit of a relationship with, where you've already told them about the business and, you know, you've told them again about it and you've told them what you're going to do. And then you come back eight months later and you show them that you did exactly what you told them you were going to do. And in fact, you beat those numbers. Those are the people who end up joining rounds and, and making a bet on your business more so than someone where you did a cold reach out with a small investment bank or, you know, whatever. And you sat down and, and did it and, and pitched them. So one of the ways we've built that sort of, I think, really great um, stable of investors is to be intentional about what are the types of funds we want reputationally in terms of their focus and how do we go to them and start developing the relationship early. So rather than saying, I want 
Riverwood Capital Invest. So I'm going to go pitch them and say, hey, we're closing around in three weeks. We put in money. How do we find someone who has a connection to someone at Riverwood and go get coffee with them and say, we're not raising money. We're not looking for anything. We just want to start getting to know you. Um, and that's been a lot of our intent, basically define the types of investors you want, focus on the 15 or 20 that really matter, and just never let them forget you exist. Keep talking to them, keep getting in front of them, keep telling them what you're going to do and then showing you executed against it, and then make the ask when the time is right. Got it, got it. And and I guess that the when when you make the ask, you close the um, the money. I mean, in this case, you guys have have done very well on 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 the capital raising efforts, but typically for a hyper growth startup, right? I mean, when you're thinking about deploying that capital, it really it really leans more towards engineers because that's mm-hmm. kind of like how you're going to be able to push growth. But when we're thinking about an operation like this one, where is you know co working, where you have like also the real estate uh, component of it. What are the teams that, in your case, you really felt that you needed to cover very well uh, at first so that you could drive growth with the business later? So I think there's probably two categories of this. The first is everything related to standing up new units. So um, design and construction, real estate, the sort of product design, those teams, if you have, you know, we, from very early, we said, if we have a great, you know, sort of a great machine on that front, that's going to be really important here because with a lot of physical network businesses, you know, they, they might, they might have a great, for example, a great restaurant concept and they do really well when they get them open and they say they're going to open 40 and they open seven because all of the apparatus devoted to finding the space, negotiating it, you know, constructing it on time and on budget falls apart. So that's sort of the first. The second is having created the space, how do you how do you fill it and run it really well? So from quite early on, we had to have a really top-notch launching team, um, marketing and sales team, and then a hospitality function that really ran all of the standards around what should a customer experience day in and day out in the space. The final piece, and I think this is probably distinct from a lot of startups, is that we invested a lot in strategy early. I think we probably built an executive team with a lot with a sort of deep strategic background with a bit more experience than would be normal for a company of that size. And that was because we believed in our heart of hearts that this was going to be an absolutely gargantuan industry, that the winners in the space we're going to be 40, $50 billion companies because of the size of the sector. And that that meant the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if you could win in this environment, was so large that it was worth the investment early on to say, we want to be a little bit quicker than our competitors. We want to be a little bit better at seeing around what's the next corner, because this is going to be a crowded industry. It is going to be a complicated industry, and that we are going to get back that investment we make in making sure that we're as tight as possible on the forward-looking strategy of the business. So, so I guess um, honing in a little bit more on that, on 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 the sector itself, where would you say that co- that the co-working market is heading? Let me take thirty seconds and describe what I think this business really is, because people don't usually talk about it this way, but it's an important part of understanding where it's headed. I think this is an outsourcing industry. 
Uh, it looks a lot like other outsourcing industries. You're going to customers and saying, take something that for the last 50 years, finding, creating, managing your employees' workplace experience, and hand that off to a provider like us. Um, and the reality of most outsourcing businesses is that they exist as tiny niches for a very long time. So manufacturing outsourcing for all the 70s and 80s was half a percent of all manufacturing. You know, data storage is 1% of, you know, outsourced data storage is 1% of, of that market. And then you see this moment where there's a dramatic shift in the adoption curve, and it goes from, you know, half a percent to 1% to 7% to, in certain cases, you know, you have industries where now 99% of the market is outsourced and not done in-house. And I think we're, we are at that moment, that sort of inflection point where the industry has gone from a niche product that you used when you really needed flexibility or you really, you know, couldn't quite sign a lease on your own to lots and lots of customers saying, I'm getting a better workplace outcome when I hand this off to a third party. So I'm going to move from 1% of my workplace portfolio being outsourced to 30% or 50%. That's what the next few years are going to have in store for this industry. And the big question is going to be, how do you deliver against that oncoming tidal wave of demand in a way that really, you know, delights your customers and really keeps up product quality and delivers on the promises of this industry when it does what it does best? Right, right. And if I had to, to you know, out of being for so many years in, in co-working, if I had to put my my finger in it, I would say that it would be whoever is able to bring to life a really nice combination of community plus experiences is, is really going to lead the pack. Agreed. So, Particularly so, for smaller businesses. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. So, Jamie, you've learned quite a bit. You've launched businesses like literally all over the world. So if you could go back to the past, knowing what you know now, and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? I think I would go back and before launching a business or shortly after having launched it, I would read every book there is to read about hiring, firing, performance management, uh, building a culture of your business. I think a lot of people launch businesses and think it's 80 to 90% the underlying operations of the business, the financials, the business plan I'm putting out, and 10% people. And I've found that it's 90% the people and 10% the business plan that those people are executing against. And so everything you can do to make yourself a great hirer, to make yourself a great, you know, people manager, a great culture builder will be among, if not the most important thing you can do to make sure that your business succeeds. That's what I would have told 25-year-old Jamie. I love it. I love it. So what do you see? Um, what is the best way, Jamie, for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, my email is jamie at industriousoffice.com. And I used to be terrible at email and about four or five months ago, something flipped. And now I'm always at inbox zero. And I'm, I'm, I found I like finally cracked the code to being really responsive on email. And I can't quite put into words how, but it means if you reach out, I'm, I probably will be able to, to get back to you. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Thank you. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.